A couple of months ago, I was in my office over here in the barn real early on a Sunday morning. I was reading over my notes before uh, coming over here to teach. It was, uh, there was nobody at the campus. It was dark in the offices. And I got up from my desk and I walked across our, our little hall there where Michael Lloyd and I office. And, and I walked across the hall in the conference room to get, to get a, a bottle of water. And when I walked into the conference room, I opened the doors, dark in the conference room. And I kind of looked up and just with a little bit of light coming in from my office, I saw a man standing in the corner staring at me. As you can imagine, I, I was terrified. I, I wet myself there just a little bit. And, and my heart, it's, it's racing right now, just thinking about it, honestly. It's racing right now, just thinking about this moment. And, and that man is, is here with us this morning. I, I, I want to introduce you to him. He's right back here. This is the man that was standing in that dark corner. I want you to meet Harry Styles from One Direction. Harry, say hi to everybody. Yeah, this is Harry. This is the reason that I literally had to go home uh, before church to change my pants. This is the reason right here, Harry Styles. He scared me to death. Honestly, I can't remember. We'll put Harry back here. I can't remember um, being quite that scared, at least not in a long, long time. But I do get afraid, you know, don't you? I, I get afraid. There are things that I fear. I, I fear my kids, their safety. You know, they're getting older, staying out later at night. I, I fear for their safety. I fear uh, social and cultural pressures that are just weighing in on our kids, you know, that they might overwhelm my kids and, and lead to dangerous and destructive ends. I, I, fear, I fear what it might cost me, what it might cost us to stand for our faith in the years ahead, even in this country. I, I fear that. I, I don't know what that's all going to look like. There are times that I fear the Islamic state or others that intend harm toward our country. I fear uh, what people think of me, I fear being misunderstood. I, I fear not, not, I fear being alone, I fear not ending life with, with my wife, my kids. I, I fear a lot of things. There's things about death that I fear, getting old. Well, what are some of the things that you fear? I want you to reflect on that just for a moment. What are some of the things, small or large, that, that you're afraid of? We all walk in here with stuff. What, what is it for you? And as, as they come to mind, just three or four of you, just, just shout them out. What, what are some of the things that you in particular fear? What are they? Losing a loved one. You bet. What else? Do you hear it? Cancer, illness. Anybody fear hurt or rejection? Anybody fear conflict, difficult relationships? Anybody fear getting found out? Here's a deeper question. What do you do with your fear? When, when you feel fear, what do you do with it? Do you, do you run and hide? Do you, do you stuff it? Do you try to control your, your life, your circumstances, people in it? Do you get anxious? Do you get angry? What do you do with your fear? Well, where do you go? In Ezra chapter 3, we'll, we'll turn there in just a minute. We're going to find that the Israelites are afraid. Ezra's going to tell us they're terrified. 
You know, they've just come back from Babylon. There's about 50,000 of them, which is not a very big number returning to Israel. They've gone back to their respective cities and their nation, Israel, it's surrounded by all their enemies. They, they've gone back and they have no wall, no army. There, there's no police. There's no security system, no house alarm. They, they've got nothing to defend themselves from the surrounding nations, literally millions of people that surround this small group of Israelites who've returned and, and they're afraid. They're scared. And they do something here in Ezra chapter three that he records for us. They do something here in the midst of their fear that I don't think would be at the top of our list. I'm not sure it would even be on the list. They go back to the homes of their ancestors and then they gather. The text is gonna tell us that they gather as one man in Jerusalem, meaning they all gather together in Jerusalem. Go back to their cities and then they all meet up in Jerusalem and they all get together in Jerusalem. They're all afraid, but they get together in Jerusalem not to talk about their security plan, not to form a militia, not to take turns watching the horizon such that their enemies might be coming and they could warn everyone. No, they don't do that. They, they gather in Jerusalem to do one thing. They gather in Jerusalem to worship God. What? Like, wait a minute. That's what they do in the midst of their fear? Yeah, that's what they do. They make their way through the ruins in Jerusalem to the place where the temple once stood. It is just totally leveled. They, they clear enough a way to build an altar where David first built an altar. And for at least one month, probably longer, they worship and they worship and they worship. Have you, in the midst of your fear, ever considered worship? Have you? Like, have you ever been really afraid and thought, oh, I, I know what I'm going to do. This is perfect. I'm going to go get my old keyboard out of the attic and I'm going to belt out some praise songs. Anybody on there? No. What? That's what they do here. They do. They gather around that altar. They start stacking things on it and they give God his due. I want you to see it in the text with me. So open your Bible to Ezra chapter three. Ezra chapter three, we're in the third week of our study. We'll look at the whole chapter. I'm gonna look at this first section first, verses one through seven. And I want you just to follow along with me as I read Ezra chapter three, verses one through seven. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose, built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. 
From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons, carpenters, food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrenians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. We'll stop there for now. Now, let me just say this. There are two parts to this text. This first section that I just read where the altar is restored and sacrifices begin again. And then the second part is verses eight through 13. And that's where we'll see the temple restoration begins. They begin laying a foundation for the temple. And here's what I'd like to do today. I'm gonna make two observations. One simply from the first section and one from the second section. And what we're gonna find is that there is a common thread that runs through those two observations, a common theme that runs through the entire chapter that in the same way it transforms these returnees to Israel in Jerusalem on these days, these two days at the altar and when the temple is being rebuilt, same transformation that happens then could, if we will let it, it could change us. It could change our perspective. It could change our hearts. It could even change the way we live. So I'm gonna make these two observations and then we're gonna just turn this truth on us. We're going to shine this light on ourselves, so to speak, at the end. Okay, let me make this first observation. I want to make a few comments before I do. This happens, this is going to come out of this first section, and I'll make these comments before I get to the broader observation. I just want you to notice first how much of the text is dedicated to the way they worship. Okay, just notice that. You just heard it over and over, right? Burn offerings for this, burn offerings for that, festivals, feasts, the altar, the sacrifices. It's like Ezra goes into great detail about the way they worship. Why? Well, there are three clues for us in the text, and I want to show them to you because this is important. Look at verse 2 first. Jeshua and Zerubbabel built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Here's the key phrase. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Okay, tuck that away. Now look at verse four. They celebrate the feast of booths. Here it is again. As it is written. And they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. Everything that they do here points back to what God had told Moses to do. Everything that they do here points back to how God had told Moses to worship. This is redemptive history coming full circle. God's the one who told Moses how to worship. Moses recorded it for the Israelites and now for us in the Old Testament in the law. It's also called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. These specific references here to the altar and to burnt offerings are found in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. So after a very long hiatus in Babylon, some 70 years, the Israelites now gather back in Jerusalem. And the first thing that they do is demonstrate their obedience to God. 
Ezra goes into great detail to show us how important that obedient worship is to them. They're exact about it. They're precise about it. You see, this is not just a return to the land. This is a return to the worship of God. 70 years in Babylon, they weren't worshiping God. 70 years in Babylon, there were other gods that were worshiped, other idols, other sacrifices that were made. When they come back here to rebuild the temple to the one true God, they desire to worship him in the same way that David did. See, sacrifices were the way that Israel acknowledged God as God. Burnt offerings were the way that they did that. And a a burnt offering was just that. It was burnt to a crisp. Nothing of benefit that comes out of a burnt offering. No food to eat, nothing except the restoration of right relationship with God. Hadn't had for 70 years. Restoration of a right relationship with God through acts of obedient worship. Okay, so I want us to have that in our minds. It's very important to this context. And then second, I want us to see when this worship takes place. And that's found in verse six. Look there. It was in the seventh month of the year. And then in the verse six, it was before the foundation of the temple had been laid. Ezra wants the reader, you and me to know that worship came first. Just over and over again, worship is the priority. Worship comes first. We start with worship. They, they, they returned to Babylon. And we know this from chapter one and chapter two. Mike, Michael talked about this and Lloyd did as well. The purpose for returning to Jerusalem from Babylon was to rebuild the temple, right? That, that's why they're going back. Listen, they don't lay a single brick, not a single brick. They don't even order the materials they need until they worship. And we know why, don't we? It's because they're afraid. And verse three says it clearly. They're terrified because of the peoples in the lands, which leads us to our observation from this section. Real security is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of God. I'm gonna unpack this. Real security is not found in the absence of fear, terrified. It's found in the presence of God. They worship in their fear. You see, true security, it's it's not found in an army, not not true security, not found in a wall. It's not found in a police force. It's not found in an alarm system. Real security, true security is found in the worship of the one true God. God and the people standing around the altar in Jerusalem, they, they know it. See, worship is simply the response of a people rightly related to God. That's all that worship is. It's the response of a people in right relationship with God. And people who are rightly related to God know that their security is actually in his hands, not their own. That's what they know. That's what these people knew. I want you to think about it this way. 
what is, in our minds, we might use many words to answer this question, but what is, what is the opposite of fear? We might go to peace. We might go to trust, right? It's the opposite of fear is to not be afraid. That, that's peace. We want peace. Well, how then do we go from fear to peace? How do we make that jump? I would simply suggest that we can't. We can't just make the jump from fear to peace. When I saw Harry in that dark corner, there was nothing about me that was jumping to peace. I couldn't make that transition. We can't. We we can't do that. In fact, I would say this, I'll suggest this, and I think Ezra actually shows this. I think it's not an either or, like I'm afraid, oh good, now I'm at peace. And now I'm at peace, but oh gosh, now I'm afraid again. I don't think it's an either or for us. It's not for them, but a both and. I, I am afraid and I am finding some peace. You see, Ezra shows here how to bring those two things together. We think they're exclusive, not. Ezra's showing us here how to bring both realities, how to integrate both realities into our lives. You see, for the Israelites, two things are true at exactly the same time, aren't they? They're terrified and they're worshiping. And get this, they find their security, their peace, not in ridding themselves of their fear, but in bringing their fear into the presence, the literal manifest presence of God. It's there in his presence that they are safe. I'd say it this way, that's the only place that we are truly safe. Not because there was any guarantee that those enemies wouldn't come after them. No, not, there was no guarantee of that. Not because their fear was entirely removed. No, no, they're safe because they place their hope in something much bigger than their fear. They're safe because they place their hope in someone they can trust. That's where they find peace. Does fear or does worship remove our fear? No, I just said it. No. Does worship, does, does it remove the threat? No, it doesn't. We, we walked in here this morning with burdens, fears, anxieties, didn't we? We walked in here with those things we do every week. Do we walk out of here after worship and those things are gone? No, we don't. Those things aren't removed from us, but when we bring our fear into worship and when we see God for who he really is and we see that he can be trusted, we see in his character that he is faithful, that he is good, that his promises are true, that he is way bigger than we could have ever imagined in our fear, that he cares about us more than we can ever comprehend and get this, we begin to change. He doesn't. He's always that way. But when we bring our fear to worship, to the worship of him, when we bring our fear into his presence, we change. We begin to see our fear differently. It starts to look smaller to us when compared to him. And our trust in him, it only grows through our 
worship. See, real security is not the absence of fear, it's the presence of God. And so they worship. They start with worship and they don't stop worshiping. They continue to worship God. And we'll see this in the text and I'm gonna pick it up in the second section here. So follow along with me beginning in verse eight, if you would, as I read. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. And appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers of the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now, verse 10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes. Let me just make a quick comment here because I don't have a lot of time to unpack this statement. But these older men and women, they, they had been a part of some 70 years before the first temple. That's the temple of Solomon. It was glorious. Most beautiful temple that has ever been built in Jerusalem. This new temple was smaller. It wasn't like the old one. It wasn't the same. Those who had seen the old one grieve it. That, that's all that Ezra's telling us here. Okay, they're grieving it. While many others shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far, far away. I want to make some comments here about this section and then we'll make a broader observation here as well. In the same way that Ezra does in the first part, Ezra pays attention to the detail again, doesn't he? And attention to the way that they worshiped on this occasion. Now that the temple foundation is being laid, the temple is being restored. He, he comments about the peril of the priests and the Levites, what they were playing, the trumpets and the cymbals, what the people there were singing, what they were shouting. Now, now how did the people of Israel know how to worship? Well, Ezra answers that too. They had been given directions. And in this case, they had been given directions by King David. So, so it's Moses who gives directions related to the sacrifices around the altar. And it's King David who gives directions for worship in the temple. We find this in 1 Kings 6 and 1 Kings 16. And Ezra mentions that here in verse 10. He just says it simply. Priests stood with trumpets. Levites stood with cymbals. They stood to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. The way 
that you and I, that they were and that you and I are to worship God, the way that we are to worship God is found in the word of God. For it's in the word of God that we discover all that God is, who he has revealed himself to be. What David recorded some 400 years before about God has not changed. So when these Israelites return to Jerusalem and they begin to praise and worship God, they are worshiping the same God, same character, nature, his essence, the God who is worthy of their worship, the God who is good and is faithful to them. And they choose to do it according to what has been written for them. They obey the words of David for them in worship and they worship in the same way the faithful servant of God, David, did. You cannot separate the worship of God from the word of God. Now, I want you, also want you to notice here when this worship service takes place, when this one takes place, and this will lead us to the broader observation from this section, and, and it's found in the beginning of verse 10. This is the when. Now, when, plain as day, the builders had laid the foundation of the temple, they stood and worshiped and so on and so forth. When the foundation had been laid. Here's what's interesting to me. The foundation is just one small step in a long building process, isn't it? It's progress, but it's not the end. They were there to build a temple. They would ultimately rebuild a city. They take one small step in the process and they go nuts. They go crazy in their worship. They can't contain themselves. It seems disproportionate to me. But it isn't for them. Why? Because their worship is about a whole lot more than a foundation. That's why. See, the worship goes way deeper than a foundation. Look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. Look at verse 11 right here. Ezra answers why they worship the way they do. They sang, praising and giving Thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Get this. The foundation of the temple is a picture of the faithfulness of God. That's why they worship. It's a picture of his goodness toward them. God is doing what he said he would do. God is reviving a nation. God keeps his promises. God hasn't forgotten his people. What seemed impossible less than a year ago in Babylon was now actually happening right before their eyes and they cannot contain themselves. They can't do it. They continue in their worship and their joy is made complete. Here's the observation from this section. Our greatest joy is found in the worship of our impossibly faithful God. You want to know where greatest joy comes from? The presence of a faithful God. That's where it comes from. The joy just leaps off the page. Ezra says, they shout it with great joy, singing, dancing, praising. They can't contain themselves for their joy. Here's my problem 
I, I don't have a problem at all, I, at all, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't have as much of a problem with the faithfulness of God. I really don't. I, like the faithfulness of God, it's like over and over. You just cannot get away from it in this book. God's faithfulness in my own life. I, I, I just can't deny that he has been incredibly good and faithful to me. I have a joy problem. That's the problem that I have. It is, I, I have a joy problem. Here's what it looks like for me. I can get so fixated on what lies ahead that my joy can be robbed in the present. That's it. Like so fixated on what lies ahead. My fixation on what's to come, what's next, what's around the corner, what's in the future, even if it's just a few short minutes away, my fixation on that robs my joy in the present, in the here and now. Can I tell you what I would have been thinking when the Levites and this priest showed up on the temple site. If I'd been there that day, if I'd been one of the builders helping to build the foundation, can I tell you what I would have been thinking? What are you guys doing here? I promise you this is the truth. What is the pastor doing here? That's what I would have been thinking. What in the world are these guys doing here? This is ridiculous. They brought all these instruments. They're singing, dancing, praising God. We've taken one tiny step. Like, yeah, I would love for all that to happen when we get finished. Like, we'll finish the temple. We'll have a place to actually do this. We can all worship God then. We'll celebrate like crazy, not in the middle of the process. My fixation on the end, end goal, the finished product, the outcome, the results, it would have robbed my joy in the moment, which means that I wouldn't have truly worshiped, not fully with them. It's true in a lot of areas of my life. And I'll tell you where I've discovered it. I, I think it's true for a lot of us in one form or another. This is where I discovered it this summer. My dad invited me to go play golf with him at Pebble Beach. I always find a way to work some golf illustration into a message. He, he invited me to go play with him at Pebble Beach. And um, this is a dream trip for a golfer. I don't know how many of you are, but this is just a dream trip. It's on the West Coast, California. It's just absolutely spectacular. One of the top two or three golf courses in the world. And so I'm going, I'm in for sure. I'm going, we, we go there. I'm walking down the first fairway. It's perfect. 7.45 in the morning. Sun's just come up, 72 degrees. I mean, it is perfect weather. Walking down the first fairway, here's the question that's going on in my head. Am I going to be able to really enjoy this if I don't play good? That's the question. It is just rumbling around in there. Am I going to be able to enjoy this walk, this coastline, these moments with my dad? 72 degrees, it was 99 here. Am I going to be able to enjoy this if I don't play good? It took me seven or eight holes to answer the question. That's sad, isn't it? It's sad. Uh, my fixation on the results, how I might play was robbing my joy in the present and it was preventing me from worshiping the God who had given me the opportunity, the God who made the coastline, the God who had given me a moment with my dad. It's robbing my joy. It's true in lots of areas in my life. I mentioned I, I can miss a moment with one of my kids because I'm not fully present with them, thinking about what's next, what's coming, 
what we got to do, where we got to be. You know, I, I mean, thinking about all that and just miss a moment, miss the joy, the great joy that's found in the worship of God and the uniqueness, the wonderful way that he's made my kids who are pulling on my pant leg or sharing some story with me. I can miss that. I can miss moments with God, even my personal quiet with him. I study, I can get so caught up in, man, I gotta get this done so I can get on to something else. I, I gotta get this read so I can teach this weekend. I gotta get my thoughts together so I can move on and I can miss the joy, the great joy that's found in the process at moments all along the way of just being with him. The privilege that I have as a job to study his word, I can miss that. Any of you would love to have that. I can miss it. Miss the joy that's found in worshiping him right there. I, I, I think we do. We, we look for joy in the things that don't actually offer it. And we take for granted the one place that we actually know, that we actually can be certain that joy is found every time. The worship of the one true God his goodness and his faithfulness to us in every circumstance, every moment, every aspect, every relationship, every work issue, every family conflict, every moment of every single day. Our greatest joy is found in the worship of our impossibly faithful God. I want you to close your Bible, if you would. I, I said that we would kind of turn this truth on ourselves, and I just did. I turned it on me. And I want to invite us to a, a corporate application this morning. And, and, and this is what I want to invite us to do. And I mentioned this earlier, and uh, it's going to take just a little work on your part, a little bit of reflection, and, and then we're going to invite you to, to sing with us. And, and I'll tell you why. But here's the reflection part. All of us came in here this morning, this is what I mentioned earlier, with, with some level of burden that we're carrying, some fear, some fixation, some, something about our kids or a loved one, so, something um, that is stealing our joy, some deal at work, some relationship. We all walk in here with stuff, don't we? We all do. Some of it's smaller than others, some of it overwhelming, some of it big. But we all walk in here with those things. And, and I want to invite you in these moments just to reflect on whatever that is for you, J just to go there for a minute. Whatever that is for you, wh wherever you are, wh whatever you walk in here carrying. I want you to reflect on it for a moment. And then in just a minute, I I'm going to invite us to bring whatever that is into the presence of God. I'm going to invite us to just bring it into our worship. And here's what I mean by that just that you would be acknowledging it as you worship. That's it. Just bring it here. All that you are in this moment to the altar, so to speak, and acknowledge all that God is. Declare all that he is in that moment. That's what I'm going to invite us to do. You see, we worship not because it solves the problem, not because it removes the threat, not because it remedies our fear, we worship because when we do, we are reminded of who we can trust. 
we are reminded of where our security is found. When we do, we're reminded of who is in control and who holds us safely in his hands. So take just a moment to reflect. What is it that you bring in to the room today? Then I'm gonna invite us to bring that to worship. Take just a minute. You guys know that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything. Temple, altar, sacrifices, offerings, all of it points to Jesus. Now we're here today on the other side of Jesus. We know that he has come. And so we're gonna sing this song just like the Israelites gathered around the altar and did, just like they stood on that foundation and did. And let these words wash over us. Wash over our fears. Wash over our problems, our struggles, our challenges. Wash over our fixations and our anxieties. And allow the peace of God and the security of God and the joy of God to be there right alongside. Would you stand with us as we worship? Shall we say you are? 
Jesus, you are all that you say you are. Thank you for the incredible joy that is found when we bring all that we are just as we are to you. You invite it and you meet us right here. May we know joy and we may, may we know safety in your presence alone. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I brought Harry Styles here for a reason this morning. I used to be afraid of Harry Styles. <laughs> but now I've invited him to worship, right? And I'm not afraid of him anymore. My God, uh, you teenage girls won't believe this, but my God is bigger than One Direction. He is. <laughs> he is way bigger. And may we for sure, truly, know the security and the joy that's found in the worship of him. Go in peace, and we'll see you next week.